We're in the Gospel of John this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't know where John is, there's a table of contents at the front of that Bible. It will indicate to you uh, where to find that. So give you a moment to be turning there in John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. If you've never done the Lord's Supper with us, it's going to look a little bit different than maybe uh, one of these other services you've been a part of, or maybe you've never been in a church. This is your first time to ever come into church, and so I uh, invite you just to, just to observe and, and dwell in the richness of God's people gathered together reflecting upon the sacrifice of the Son. But the way that this is going to work is we're going to split our service into two, and so we'll have a time of teaching, time of worship, and taking of the bread. Then we'll come back through, have another time of prayer, some more teaching, and worship as we take the cup together. And so first we're going to begin in John chapter 12, verse 37, and we're going to walk down to verse 43, just to kind of give you a lay of how this is going to go. Let me read this for us, and then we'll begin to work our way through it, starting in verse 37 of John chapter 12. John writes and says, Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes, he's hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Within this short few verses, we have a couple of difficult things we're going to work through, but one of the things we see in there is this is really the end of Jesus' teaching cycle. This will be the last real time that we see him out there entreating uh, men and women to come in to believe him. And then on the basis of this, what we see is moving from this, according to John's chronology, kind of how he sequences and lays things out, the next really big thing is the passion. But here we see it's immediately following this amazing teaches, teaching Jesus had had in John chapter 12. John, uh, John records that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and this just sent off this whole series of teaching that Jesus was able to do. Obviously, raising Lazarus from the dead was an indication, was, was a foretaste of Jesus himself being raised from the dead. Look how he starts there. He says, though he had done many signs before them. Jesus had been about the business of really displaying the power of God through the conducting of miracles. And so you can think back to the wedding in Cana, so the first recorded miracle, and so they run out of wine. Somebody comes up, and they say, we don't have any wine left to serve. We've got all this water. And so Jesus takes this ceremonial water, and he converts from water to wine. We see him heal the man in John chapter 4 who is lame. Jesus heals this guy who for years has laid beside this pool, hoping to be healed himself. In John chapter 9, we see this really fundamental and closely tied to this account, man who is blind. Blind, he, he's never been able to see, and so Jesus gives this man sight. And one of the things this does is it, it tremendously highlights, not physical sight, but it highlights spiritual sight, of which the Pharisees, the Sadducees, have none. Jesus is teaching and living in the midst of a, of a generation of people who are largely spiritually blind. See, they know a lot about God, but they, in fact, don't actually have relationships with God. And occasionally find ourselves being the same people, right? 
people who are awed and captivated. Maybe you look out at creation, you say, God created all of this, he created me. He's holding all these things in tension. We know a lot about God, but an observation of God has not resulted in change internally in your life. So this great sadness here in verse 37, though they had seen many of these signs, they didn't believe. In fact, Jesus himself calls them in John chapter 10 and verse 38. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe the things I say, at least believe the works, at least believe the signs. All of these signs he has performed haven't just been so they'd say, wow, he's a really good guy. I mean, he's really powerful. He does a lot of really cool stuff. They have been to draw them to himself, but still what we find thus far, many of them didn't believe. Why? Now, John does this curious thing here. And John's obviously writing many years after the death, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's reflecting on these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what John wants us to cue in as is all of this stuff is tied into is a fulfillment of those things that Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before. And so we have to look at this. Isaiah, prophet of the Lord to Judah, look what he said. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So Jesus quoting out of Isaiah here, and so we have to go find this context. And so if you can, flip back over to the left and find yourself in Isaiah 53. In fact, we're going to look a little bit before that in Isaiah 52. You see, to a certain degree, Jesus is using these words of Isaiah to continue to teach something about himself. So this question that Isaiah asked who has seen the arms and, and talking about the words being revealed, God is demonstrating tremendous power in Isaiah's day, talking about how he's going to keep the Assyrians from coming in if they will follow him and what this looks like, and, and has sent Isaiah to go into teach and proclaim and be this voice of the Lord to the people who are living in an in incredible rebellion. But one of the things we find in this is that immediately before this quote, look what he's asked. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 and 14. Speaking of the Messiah, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. And as many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind talking obviously about the messiah and so even in this jesus is calling them beckoning them to see jesus in this passage now one of the things we find about the israelites within the days of isaiah and within the day of jesus speaking is that the bible describes them as being a hard-hearted people whose hearts were hard and were kept away from god now, when you open up the book of Isaiah to the first chapter, we really get this snapshot of these people. You see, our tendency, in, 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 in essence, in reading this and reading about, oh my goodness, is God keeping these people from hearing? Is he keeping them from believing? Surely they must be these amazing people. Why would God do this? But look at God's description of the people of Isaiah back in chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Speaking of the whole nation, God says, ah, sinful nation. Sinful nation is how he describes them, a people laden with iniquity, overwhelmed with sin, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. What we find is that God sends Isaiah into not a happy place. 
Imagine that God has given you a message, and in essence, he has. And he tells you, I want you to go and I want you to communicate the gospel to these people. And they have incredibly hard hearts. In fact, if I'm going to describe them, and I say the whole nation, the whole lot of them are sinful. And when you go in and you communicate the gospel to them, when you go in and you preach to them, they're not going to hear you. In fact, every call you have to them in their lives to say repent, every call you have to them in their lives to say believe, every call you have to them in their lives to say walk away, turn away, follow God is going to be met with rejection. And this rejection is going to look like hard-heartedness. This is the ministry he calls Isaiah into. And this is the same ministry Jesus finds himself in. You see, the message that they have heard from Jesus is repent, believe the kingdom of God is at hand. The arm of the Lord that they've seen from Jesus are all the miracles and all the signs that he's performed. But yet, what do we see in verse 37? It says, still they did not believe. So verse 39, it says, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, quoting Isaiah 6, he says, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Before Isaiah ever goes out, God communicates to him, these people are not going to turn. These people are not going to believe. I can tell you one of the errors that you may make sitting here today is to look at your own heart, your own life, and you read this passage in there and you say, I'm never going to believe, I'm never going to hear because I don't have eyes to see, I don't have ears to hear, and I don't have a heart to understand. You're not in this passage. What Isaiah is talking about, the people he's speaking to, and the people Jesus is speaking directly to, it's not you. Within Isaiah's day, Jesus, within Isaiah's day, Isaiah goes out and he communicates. He's been clearly told by God they're not going to respond. In Jesus' day, we see many do respond, and insistently, repeatedly, Jesus calls them to recognize who he is. We are not that audience. We're not that audience. You see, part of the unbelief in Jesus' day allowed for Jesus' crucifixion, which allows for our belief. Amen? So what we see in there, he speaks of God. He says, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, this is an amazing verse. Look at verse 41. So Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Back in Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6 opens up, and it's this amazing picture Isaiah has. He says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And when he called to the Lord, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah has this vision where he's there before God, and he sees God on the throne, and he sees all these angels crying out with this amazing description of God, holy, 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 giving us an indication that God is holy, perfect, that there's no deficiency and there's no weakness in him, and that's why he did it three times. So Isaiah sees this, and look what he says, verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, oh no. Isaiah sees God, God speaks, and Isaiah assumes that he is about to die because he has encountered the living God. So he says, woe is me, 
For I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, look what he says, have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, it's on the basis of Isaiah having seen the glory of God and seeing the glory of God compared to the repugnant nature of the people around him solidifies the word of God in Isaiah's heart. And on the basis of these things, on the basis of of this vision of God, he finds himself being obedient to God. Because Isaiah had this incredible encounter with God, he is led out on this mission of radical obedience to God. So this is what we see. Jesus performs incredible miracles displaying the arm of the Lord. He has this phenomenal teaching displaying the word of the Lord. Still many don't believe. We get into verse 39. Look what it says. Verse 42, rather. It says, nevertheless, many, listen to this, even of the authorities, believed in him. So the idea is that that most people didn't on the basis of just seeing the signs, but we find that some did. And then even on this select group, the authorities, likely the Sadducees, we find that some folks believed. This This group who knew the high cost of what it was to believe, the high cost of what it was to follow, even some of them believe. But what we find is their belief is tragic. It says, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. You'll remember in John chapter 9 when we're going through this man who who is healed from being blind, that his family is threatened, he's threatened with being put out completely of the synagogue. Now, Some of you may think it's a great joy if we were to come to you and say, I'm sorry, you're just not allowed to come anymore. You're just not allowed to come anymore. You get your Sunday mornings back. You can all of a sudden stay over on Saturday nights on distant trips. If you're giving to the church, that frees up at least 10% of your income. And so you say, oh, this is just great. It's amazing. It's not really all that impactful in my life. It's not all that harmful in my life. But at the day and time that Jesus is speaking, the synagogue and everything, all the fibers of their life revolved around this gathering. The worship, how they saw getting rid of sin, their community, their family, their family's family, all their friends, everything revolved around their place in the synagogue, their place in church. So imagine losing all of your friends. Imagine being alienated from your family. Imagine losing everything that you knew, everything that was normal because you confessed Jesus. You see, this is the call that he asks us to make as well though isn't it this is the call that jesus asks each of his followers to make following jesus is being willing to lose everything for him to lose pride to lose position to lose respect to have family turn on you this is what the high call of following jesus is and we see that these Men, they believed, but they wouldn't confess it because they wouldn't give up what they prized. Verse 43 says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Man, this is exactly where we are. Some of us in this room, some of us have family that this is who they are. They love the glory that comes from man. They love being the most popular they love being the most powerful they like being the most well-liked and so they structure everything in their lives around that 
And in so doing, they don't confess Jesus. They live up to their own standards. They live up to their own lives. And what John tells us here is they love the glory of man more than the glory of God. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe that's why you haven't come to know Jesus. Because you recognize, man, saying I'm wrong about my way of disbelief means to tell everybody that for the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 decades of life, that I was wrong. That he is real, that he does exist. That all those people you told were foolish and stupid, uh, neophytes, small-minded drinking in the opiate of the masses, that all these people, you think, man, I've, the laundry list of people I've got to go back and apologize to for calling stupid is completely overwhelming. I wonder how they feel about a CC email. I'm really sorry. Like, I don't even know you, but I thought you were stupid. Sin. So some of us, we enjoy the glory of man so much more than the glory of God. This is what's keeping us from coming to believe. But even those of us who have come to believe Jesus, there are moments in our lives we so prize the glory of man, don't we? You find yourself in this encounter. You walk into a, to a store and, and, and pastor your friend, and somebody's challenged you to share the gospel. And so you walk in and be like, hey, how are you? And, and, and you've got plenty of awkward handshake. Oh, what's that? And so you've got plenty of time to converse. And then you're like, you're looking around. Somebody come around and interrupt this conversation. Really don't want to share the gospel with this guy. Oh, look at that. Somebody else walked into the store on the other side. You're going to hell. I'm so sorry. <clears throat> and so this is kind of what we do. That we create situations and scenarios to let us have this out because we crave the glory of man. And sometimes that glory is our own. In craving the glory of man, we crave ease for our lives. In craving the glory of man, we crave ease in our workplace. So we don't interject the gospel into these situations because we don't want to make it awkward for everybody around us. Come on now. You don't want to make it awkward for you. You don't want to make it awkward for you. And so we live in a land, we live among people as innocent and invisible Christians. And so we have this outrage that we think is best articulated on social media, but never in the workplace, lest it be about politics, lest it be about taxes, lest it be about something else that's socially acceptable that all those people gathered around us have equal consternation, anger, frustration about. That's what Jesus says to us. Matthew 10, 32 through 33, he has a hard word, a hard teaching for us. Look at this here. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father is in heaven. And we say, amen, hallelujah. Man, I am so glad that, that when we confess Jesus before men, that we are confessed before the Father, that the assurance of our testimony before God is held in place by the power of the Spirit and the testimony of the Son. But look what he goes on to say. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus gives us an amazing opportunity to communicate him, to admit that we are followers of Jesus before men. And every time we don't, we are reveling in the glory of man instead of the glory of God. See, the cross of Jesus, when we gather together to take the Lord's Supper again, allows us once again to make this commitment to honor 
him before men. It's us coming in some sense of solidarity, gathered around his table together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and remembering the sacrifice of Jesus and rededicating ourselves corporately as we do so individually that in remembering his sacrifice, so too our daily obedience is transformed. So as we begin to pass out the first of the elements, let me ask that as you take and hold, that you would reflect on what it is to honor God before those he has you in contact with. What it is to honor God before those he has, in con- has you in contact with and living a life in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus in the presence of many who would deny. Let me ask that he can sustain us. Picking back up in the Gospel of John in the 12th chapter, verses 44 through 50, there's a decidedly different tact that John begins to display as he records the words of Jesus in this. And one of the things you'll observe is that Jesus finds it decidedly important that we recognize that he is not on this this kind of one-man trip. He is not on this trip of his own initiative, but everything he's done, everything he has said has pointed to the Father. Got to understand that. You see, there was in the day of Jesus this understanding that the person who was sent carried with them the authority of the one who sent them. They were, in some sense, representing the one who sent them. So every time you read, you see Jesus says, Uh, Don't look at me, look at the one who sent me. Don't see me, see the one who sent me. Don't hear my words, but hear the words of the one who sent me. Recognize this, he is unreservedly pointing at the Father and asking them to glory in who God is. Jesus, in essence, is saying, don't get lost focusing on me. Always look back and focus on the Father. Verse 44, he says, and Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. He's calling on them not to just believe on the basis of what he said, but he's calling them to believe something so incredibly deeper, something ground-altering for us. It can absolutely shift who we are. Not just the words he says, we believe in the one who sent him. He's tying himself in his mission to the Father. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Verse 45, he who sees me sees him who sent me. In Jesus, we see God come in flesh. Jesus comes so that we might see God displayed. Jesus comes, in essence, so that we might have a relationship with God through the vicarious death of Jesus. If you see me, you see the one who sent me. Now, this had to be curious for those there, right? And so it's calling in their mind, and they're asking over and again, who is it that has sent him? Who is it? I mean, how great this guy must be that he went out and he sent this guy who's teaching like nobody we've seen, who's healing and doing miracles like nobody we've ever seen before. How great must that guy be? And Jesus is saying, absolutely, it's the Father. Absolutely, it's the Father. You see me, you see the Father. Look what he says in verse 46 kind of the center point of this. He says, I have come into the world as light. Now last week we looked in, the, in 1 John and in, in John's letter out of the church of Ephesus. We looked and he says that God is light. In him there is no darkness. And in this passage we read here, he says, Jesus has come as the light to do what? So that whoever believes in me may not remain 
in darkness. In your pre-Christian state, and some of you, you just call that Sunday, you call that today, where you are today, you dwell in darkness. You dwell in darkness and you try and fill that darkness with light. You try and fill it with joy. You try and fill it with happiness. You try and fill it with things you enjoy. But biblically, when we're talking in terms of light and darkness, Scripture would say that you dwell in darkness. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote on this same subject in the book of Colossians. Let me just read it to you. Don't turn there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, speaking of Jesus, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, We've been moved from darkness to light. Jesus, who described himself in John chapter 8 and verse 12 as light, was sent on this rescue mission. He came and redeemed you from darkness. Christians, we tend to have this kind of forgetfulness or kind of pre-Christian amnesia in some sense, which is good in some ways and bad enough. It's bad in the fact that we look at people who are unregenerate, people who have not been saved, and we look at them and we see them do things, and we get so stinking frustrated with them. When you're frustrated with the people around you, remember this, they dwell in darkness. You dwelled in darkness. The commonality and the free extension of the gospel is to go to them and be like, friend, here is the gospel of Jesus Christ who came into darkness to pull you out of it. Jesus didn't come to make darkness better for you. He came to pull you out of darkness. Do you see the difference? I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The pattern of the Christian is that we have enjoyed what it was like to live in darkness, and so we want to take brief excursions and trips. We want to go on holiday back to darkness. We want to go on vacations back to darkness because we become nostalgic for our former way of existence and manner of life. What does Jesus say? To believe in him is not to remain, abide, live, dwell in darkness. God has sent his son Jesus to come up and to take residence in your heart. And the light that he manifests and displays there is constantly driving darkness from your life and leading you to abstain from darkness and to crave the light that is Jesus. Look what he says in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken him will be a judge on that day. Recognize that this is really similar to what Jesus, the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Justin read the the beginning part of that just a moment ago. And in John chapter 3 and verses 19 through 21, look what Jesus says. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God sent his son Jesus to go into the darkness to pull you back to the light so that you may not have the judgment of God resting upon yourself. The judgment of God is this. 
all those who choose to remain in darkness instead of coming into light, choose to follow themselves instead of following God. There's no both and. There's no ability to remain in darkness yet do enough good that God looks at it and says, you know what, Doug was a pretty terrible guy in terms of rejecting my son, but he did so many nice things for the community. Doug, come on in. I mean, Philip, he works for benevolence, and he does so much good stuff in benevolence. Even though he rejected my son, it's okay because he's done all these good things. To reject Jesus is to receive the judgment of God, the word of God against yourself. Jesus says it this way in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look what Jesus says in verse 49 of John chapter 12. He says, For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has given, has given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. The commandment God has given to his son is eternal life. If you would believe in Jesus, turn from your sin, Look to the sacrifice of Jesus and the cross of Christ. You could be forgiven your sin. The great sadness, as we see it in this passage, is when we prefer darkness over the light of Jesus and when we prefer the glory of man over the glory of God. For those of you who have submitted yourselves to Jesus, you have asked him to come in to redeem you, to forgive you your sins. When we look at the Lord's Supper, the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood poured out for the atonement of our sins, our sin, our shame come to rest on Jesus. We look at this and we are joyous. We rejoice that the sacrifice of Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, but for all those who stand outside, who reside, remain in darkness, to all of them, to look at the sacrifice of Jesus is to remember that the judgment of God is still on you. As we turn and prepare to take of the cup, we recognize that the one who has come into the world as light has exposed the darkness. And for those of us who have surrendered ourselves to God, who have accepted Jesus, the Lord's Supper is open for you. It is a reflection upon the sacrifice of Jesus and how he has allowed you to walk in obedience to the light. We have fellowship with one another, as John says in 1 John. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all iniquity. All sin is covered in the blood of Jesus, the sins of our past, the sins of our present, the sins of our future, and we rejoice and say amen. So as the deacons are standing and we're passing out the elements, I would ask that you would take and hold until we've all been served and that you would continue to reflect on the goodness of our God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world as light so that we might have life and forgiveness in him.